Well, some of you are visiting with us maybe for the first time joining us in this series. We titled it Eavesdropping on Godly Counsel as we go through 1 Timothy because we have been looking at what Paul has written to Timothy as he directs the guidance of the church at Ephesus. This morning, we come to looking into the fishbowl qualifications for ministers. Just a couple of weeks after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the face of the, earth, uh, face of the moon, our family moved to Arizona. My dad accepted the call to pastor a very small church, Village Meadows Baptist Church in Sierra Vista, Arizona. And so my parents, two sisters and I, relocated from Fort Worth to Arizona. I was going into the fifth grade and was really excited about the move. We would be living in this thing called a parsonage, which I had never heard of, nor did I understand. All I knew was we were gonna have two bathrooms for the very first time. And it also had a built-in water cooler. So we would have some level of air conditioning for the first time that I had ever known as a kid. We never had anything like it. So this 1,100 square foot house seemed amazing to my young eyes. The home was made of concrete block. The walls were kind of like a bomb shelter. But I came to learn over the years that you could actually see through those walls. They looked like concrete, but they were really glass. Because now that my dad was a pastor, we were living in something called a fishbowl. My dad seemed to, be, seemed to be called as a pastor, since the call to be a pastor, around the age of 17. Uniquely, about the same time that I was called to be a pastor. He was licensed to ministry soon afterwards at the Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And that's where we attended until uh, we moved to Fort Worth when I was a kindergartner. Not knowing exactly how to follow up on what he sensed was a calling to ministry, my dad went to work for his dad at the Sun Oil Company after he graduated from Baylor. Along the way, in those first nine years of marriage, my parents had my older sister, me, and my younger sister. And life felt pretty normal compared to the other people in our neighborhood, in that neighborhood not far from Love Field Airport in Dallas. But after 10 years in the oil industry, my dad made a radical shift and enrolled in Southwestern Seminary. We moved to Fort Worth, and that was our home for the next four years. Again, our life seemed a bit like the rest of our neighbors. My mom was teaching school, and my dad was going to school in between his other jobs. But when we moved to Arizona, things began to change. It wasn't bad. I loved our new life, but it was different. We came to be known as preacher's kids. And a couple of men in our neighborhood didn't like us, spoke ill of us, and treated us harshly when we were outside playing simply because they didn't like anything related to God. We also had people paying attention to us a lot more than the other kids. We were expected to be better, which I sadly rebelled against and became determined to prove that I was just like everybody else. But thankfully, it all worked out. And here I am five decades later, thankful for the privilege of being a second-generation pastor. But it reminds us that whether or not we like it, ministers live in a fishbowl. 
a fishbowl to be observed by others. And some of that is by design from God's word. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see the qualifications for a pastor or elder, basically a minister in leadership of a local church. And what we find there might surprise us because it doesn't follow the train of conventional thinking. Around Westgate, when we're looking for a hire, I encourage those involved to look for three things, character, competency, and chemistry. Because you think about someone coming on your staff, you want someone that's truly gonna have great character. So you're never gonna have to question the issues and problems that might arise. You definitely want them to be competent because you're hiring them for a very specific job and you want them to be good at doing that particular job. And then chemistry is equally important because you want them to be able to gel with the rest of the staff and the rest of the employees. So we look for character, competency, and chemistry. But when a church looks for pastoral leadership, most often it looks first and foremost for a dynamic leader who can communicate extremely well. There seems to be a given that everything else will just fall into place if you get the man with those kinds of abilities. But Paul notes that competency skills are a fraction of a much bigger equation. In God's kingdom, character must prevail above all else. But it doesn't mean that competency is inconsequential. So I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have seen two godly men that exemplify. Their pictures could be right here next to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we go through this in our continuing study, it's important for us as all Christians to know what is expected of leadership. It doesn't mean that you will hold them to some kind of standard that is beyond what Scripture says. It doesn't mean that you will expect perfection from leadership. But all church members should know what is expected of a church leader, a minister, as, a, as described by God's Word. Godly character above all else. You will notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-7, through 7, there are 14 qualifications, and 13 are about character. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And what, what Paul was saying to the church at Ephesus that was filled with, uh, a pro not filled with, but had the problem of false teachers, people were going into ministry for ulterior motives. They were selling the job of being a minister and people were having a bad taste about what it means to be a church leader. So Paul was saying, listen, if you feel like God is calling you into that task, that's a noble task, if that's what you're desiring. And there's one, is a big difference between wanting to fulfill what God has called you to do and wanting for a position that will elevate your status. And he's saying, if you have the sense that God wants you to be in this role, go for it. It is a noble cause. Now the overseer is to be, and then he begins to talk about these qualifications. You can find these on page 1845 of the Pew Bible. If you want to follow along, they won't be on the screens. Too many to try to adjust on the screens, but you might want to follow along so you can remember each one of these. Above reproach, that means a church leader should be beyond criticism for the norm. It doesn't mean that they're never going to do something that you won't criticize or don't like, but above all, normally, they don't live a life that you would criticize. Faithful to his wife. It's much more than legal status, determining whether or not they've been divorced, how they've been married, how long have they been married. It says that this minister will have the belief in the sanctity of marriage 
as defined by Scripture, knowing that it was designed by God and is a tangible picture of how He, God, loves us. Now, how many of you have a job description that says you've got to be a wonderful husband or a wonderful wife? It's not printed up in our bylaws, but baked into the equation, the job description of being a, an effective minister is that you must be a wonderful husband. So if it's about me, talk to Michelle. If it's about Jeff, talk to Renee. If it's about Warren, talk to Trish. If it's about Stephen, talk to Alex. Jana, you can talk to Joe. If he's not, if he's not, he's disqualified. And uniquely, the question here is, he, 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 what does that mean? Uniquely, Scripture defines the role of pastor, elder, as a male. And like we talked last week, thank you for all the encouragement that I got after last week's message. You were very gracious to affirm things that were said, even if you didn't like what was said. But we're reminded that God has a creation order. And part of that creation order is defined in the church that a man is to be the leader. Now, if you're a woman and you say, I, I just think that's wrong. Just remember, that's God's creative order. God is the one that designed the church. He's the one that designed this planet. He's the one that designed us. This is his creative order. And if that still bothers you, just sit back and say, isn't it amazing that God can use the inferior gender to lead a church? Temperate. That means to have a calming effect. Most of you have a a washing machine, if you have one of the modern ones that doesn't have the agitator, but we remember what an agitator is, and, and an agitator in relationships is somebody that kind of stirs things up. And when it says to be temperate, it means to have a calming effect. When things and people seem to be losing their heads, it just kind of has a calming effect. Church life involves a lot of juggling because there's so many different perspectives and opinions, ideas. And sometimes you feel like you're juggling chainsaws. So, a minister, a leader, needs to be temperate, providing a calming effect in the midst of what is taking place. Self-controlled. That means to handle adversity without losing control. So oftentimes when adversity is coming in, and in ministry, and, and boy, goodness, to say uh, all of the years that these guys have served, 47 and 65, and you do the math on that, over a century of ministry, the criticism that they have received over the years. How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to adversity coming your way? It's to receive it and to respond in a Christ-like manner. Respectable. That means to be consistent and well-ordered. Your life is not filled with chaos. But when people look at your life, they see consistency. You don't respond this way in one situation, that way in a different situation. But there's this well-ordered consistency about the leader. Hospitable. It means relationships really do matter most. You care about people. You reach out to them. And Paul was talking to, to a group of people that were dealing with orphans and, and widows and all types of adversity in the culture. And he says, be generous with people. And that word literally means to be generous in relationships and generous with what you have, with your resources. Able to teach. Some of you are questioning that even now. Has the spiritual gift of teaching. This is the one about competency. 
It's to say, yes, all of these things matter, but competency is part of the equation. That you need to have the gift of spiritual, the spiritual gift of teaching so that you can show how God's word relates to everyone's life. Not given to drunkenness. We're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. We'll be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21, as Paul was giving the directions for the Lord's Supper. And he, and he said, some of you guys have this thing all wrong. You're coming to the Lord's Supper and you're drinking so much wine before it happens that you're already drunk by the time it occurs. He would say to this group of people in Ephesus, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by other substances, but be controlled by the very Spirit of God. Interesting enough, in today's reading, in the yearly Bible reading calendar, it talks about the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35. You know, if you're reading through the Bible now, and, and maybe this is the first time you've done it, and you're, you're confused because once you get to Jeremiah 20, it starts skipping around because Jeremiah is kind of like he dropped his file folder when he went to the printer, and so it's, it's not in chronological order. And so you're reading verse 35 today, and it talks about the Rechabites. And it might be one of those kind of slow days for reading, but we find that the Rechabites were servants of the Lord, and it says that they did something that culture, our culture thinks is impossible today. They lived their entire lives without ever drinking or tasting alcohol, and they thrived. And we look at that and say, that's not even possible. How could anyone do that? Well, proof, po proof positive, I might not be thriving, but I'm proof positive that I've done what the Rechabites have done. And that's what God is calling those who are in leadership. You can't afford to lose your mind and have your focus somewhere else. You need to stay focused on letting, your, letting yourself be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. Not violent, but gentle. This is a person who battles with his knees not with his fist. I had the most uncomfortable conversation with a minister a dozen plus years ago. His son was facing some adversity. And in my office, he explained to me, I have taught him, you make sure that you always throw the first punch. And I thought I misunderstood him and to say, make sure that you're never the one who throws the first punch. But he re reiterated, you make sure you always throw the first punch. That's not to be the household of the Lord. Not violent, but gentle. Battles on his knees, not with his fist. Not quarrelsome. You know how some people will say, let me be the devil's advocate? If you ever have the opportunity to say that in a church, just know the devil has enough advocates already. He, he really doesn't need you. But this is the kind of person that says, let me be the devil's advocate. And you want to say to them, you already are. And that's what he's talking about here. Don't foster arguments. You know, there's times in which people are going to come to you and they're going to be angry, they're going to be frustrated, they don't like a, a decision or the way things are happening or the perception of the way something is happening. It doesn't mean that you're passive against things that are in opposition to the gospel. They had a big problem at Ephesus, opposition to the gospel. It's not saying be passive. Just don't be argumentative. Learn how to deal with and correct things without fostering arguments. Don't make things worse. Not a lover of money. We'll talk more about that in chapter 6 as we continue through 1 Timothy. But think back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. 
You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said, talking about, specifically about money. Because if you have ever been drawn into the idea of making money, it will distract you. I will give you proof positive of that. Probably about 30 plus years ago, I was pastoring a very small church. They um, did not pay well. And so I was on this hunt to somehow become financially independent. So our family could be better cared for and I wouldn't have to depend upon a church. And I have a little bit of an engineering mind. I love to tinker and think about things and how they work and how they could work better. And so I wanted to create something, invent something that I could make money off of. So I invented this thing. It was called a, a picture hanging device. I actually have a US patent for it. And the idea was that I could take that and we could get that manufactured and we could make money and I would be financially independent. And that became one of those things that I kept thinking about and thinking about and working on. It's a very good invention. It just didn't make a dime. It cost me $2,000 to get a patent. So here I was trying to get out of the hole and I was digging a deeper hole. And that is just a reminder that when you try to get out of the hole and focus on money, you just get further behind. God wants, you to, God wants to make sure that those who lead in the church are focused on the church and the kingdom and not other things. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and must, not, must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Interesting use of words here because he uses the word oikos. And back then, most of the homes were in houses. And so he says, if he can't manage his house, how is he going to manage the house of the Lord? Now, does that mean that you should hold preacher's kids to a higher standard? Not a trick question, I'm just curious. Because most people do. I, I've lived that, and I, I know that one of our kids has had some challenges with that. I know what it is to sit in a Sunday school room and be asked to describe what is meant in the book of Revelation. And at that age, I'm not even sure Revelation is in the Bible. You know, it's, it's not a matter of taking and putting a spotlight on the family in such a way that it makes it uncomfortable. But you should keep the spotlight on the minister to make sure, is he managing his household well? He must not be a recent convert. Why? Because he can become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. It's kind of like the four soils that talks about the gospel. Falls on different soils. Only one of them reaps a harvest. Time reveals quality is what that parable tells us. Because of the three soils that don't, re don't reap a harvest, it happened quickly and they were choked out. Time reveals quality and that's what's being said there. I've seen that happen. I've seen young men ordained, put in a position of leadership only to flame out way too soon. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What that word means there is to be a beautiful witness who is well thought of outside of the church. Isn't that a great thought? To be a beautiful witness, that whenever someone thinks about a minister in the church that they represent and work in, that in the community they are seen as a beautiful witness and they are well thought of rather than a low opinion. So as we go through all of this, a rather unusual message for today. 
And probably the idea was, why does that even relate to us? Paul wrote it down for a very specific reason. And as you've read through uh, the book of Colossians and you find that in the yearly Bible reading, we don't have his letter to Laodicea. But we do have this letter. For whatever reason, God kept this to say, this is how a church is to be orchestrated and run the way that the leadership is to function. So church leadership requires godly character, and we need to always be aware of that throughout all of our lives, to remember that in leadership. These are timeless. During my 36 years as a pastor, things have changed a lot. When I first started, the only typing apparatus that we had in the office was my secretary's enormous electric IBM typewriter that shook the entire building every time she hit the return key. It was really innovative when I got a pager so I could be contacted for emergencies and suddenly everything seemed to be an emergency. We were high tech at Gulf Meadows Baptist Church in Houston when we were able to successfully record the service on cassette tapes. And now we're on the internet. See, things change. Cultural norms and values have changed. Church attendance habits have changed. Strategies that once were successful have been retooled. But the godly characteristics established 2,000 years ago are as relevant as ever before. Why? Because we alone, as a church, have been entrusted with a message that will be heard nowhere else. There is only one entity on planet Earth assigned to share the message of four things we need to know and one thing we need to do, and that's called the gospel. The four things we need to know is that God loves us and has created us to have a relationship with him. And that's great. But the second thing we need to know is all of us are sinners. And our sin separates us from holy God and keeps us from having any relationship with God. So then the third thing we need to know is that Jesus Christ can make us right with God. That he is a solution to our problem of being separated from God. And the fourth thing we need to know is that we can be changed for all of eternity by humbly repenting of our sins and fully surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. Every human being needs to know that. And if a church is not led by godly leadership, that message will get confused and we will get off point from sharing it. Four things we need to know, but that doesn't solve our problem because there's one thing we need to do in response to those four things we need to know. And that is to repent of our sins and ask Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior and fully surrender our life to him. So if you have never done that, I would invite you to join me to pray a prayer similar to this. And if you're already a Christian, as we always say, pray for someone that you know that is not yet a Christian. And as you've heard me say many times, if you don't have someone to pray for that's not yet a Christian, Ask God to burden your heart for someone that is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you look over the godly leadership that you see here and you say, Lord, thank you that through all of my years, wherever you have been, I pray that you have been under godly leadership because we all have memories of two specific pastors in our lives. 
the one that we loved and liked and served well, and the one we didn't like and didn't serve well. And we always remember those two extremes, and the other guys are just kind of in between. We remember, yeah, yeah, he was the guy that called everybody on his birthday, I think. I don't remember his name. But we do remember those on opposite extremes. And may we always pray that God would give us, wherever we are, godly leadership. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides us sometimes in arenas that maybe we're not as interested in. Yeah, someone else will take care of that. It's, that's okay. We'll leave that for leaders to think about. But God, we've been reminded that the characteristics we've just seen uniquely, almost to a T, are the same expectations you have for every follower of Jesus Christ. Wow. We thought it was just for pastors and ministers. But Lord, could we not look through that list and see that you've called us to do the exact same thing? To be world changers, one person at a time. And we think that if anybody in this room has never received Jesus Christ, that that is the greatest need of their life. Anybody listening online? Lord, if they've never received Christ, if you've never received Christ, my friend, I pray that you would voice a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, we see the gospel there in a nutshell, that it begins by a full surrender of our life to you, a request for your forgiveness and grace, and then a lifetime of following hard after you as we surrender everything we have. Help us to do that in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm now going to invite our deacons to make their way to the front. And as you guys come down here, if you just begin to take the elements, prepare them, and begin passing them out immediately. And I told you at the beginning that this is a, this is a show and tell today. The tell may not have been as interesting as the show. But we're going to bring David and Jean back up here again. Godly men, legends in the kingdom of God, treasures in our community. The ministry that they have had for over 100 years. And they're going to lead us in the orchestration of the Lord's Supper. So I invite you to begin to pray as the deacons start passing the elements out. If you two gentlemen would come up here, we now submit to your leadership as our chaplain emeritus and minister emeritus.
As we prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, I remind you, as our pastor often does, we don't require that you be a member of this church. We do ask that you, first of all, know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and that you have followed him in baptism. David's going to read a scripture for us, and then in just a moment, uh, we will receive the elements. I remind you that both the elements are in your hand, one under the other. Sometimes folks think, I got left out. You didn't. They're both there. David, would you read our scripture for us, please? For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, for his atoning death, for his broken body and his shed blood that paid for our sins. As we approach your table, by your merciful and gracious invitation. We pause just for a minute to ponder how much you gave for our redemption and how much we need to proclaim to the world what you've done and what is available to them. Bless our time in your presence around your table for our recollection of all that you've done for us to grant us eternal life. In thy dear son's name, amen. Even though we've prayed together I remind you that if there's something between you and God that isn't quite what it ought to be, before we take the elements, ask God to deal with that. Be willing to deal with it yourself. Perhaps there's, a, there's an issue as someone once called it, there's a controversy 
between you and God. Ask God simply to forgive and remove it so that all will be clear as we receive the Lord's Supper. The scripture tells us, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. We come to the cup. The scriptures say this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do in remembrance of me. I remind you that there's no special power in the elements of the Lord's Supper. There's no magic there. There is simply the obedience to what our Lord told us to do. And it is a witness. It's a mark of obedience. It's one of the ordinances of the church. And it is something between you and God which is very, very special. And even though there's no magic in it, there's no special power in it, you have come to the Lord's table today. You've taken the cup, you've taken the bread, And the scriptures tell us that something which we will do in just a moment. They sang a hymn and then they went out. You are about to go out from the Lord's table. I can tell you this. There will be some opportunities for you this week. Some requirements some challenges which you're going to need God's help with as you go out from the table of the Lord remember there's somebody out there this week who will need a blessing from a business suit an appreciation from an apron a comfort from coveralls, a challenge in the classroom, an encouragement at the elevator, or a correction over a cup of coffee. 
We'll meet needs like that this week. And as we, as we meet them, remember that we've been to the Lord's table. We've had a special time with him and with one another. And we are the church going out. This isn't the church. This is the church. And as the church goes out, let's make a difference. And as we go out, let us sing. Gene. Gene and David, I want to ask you and your wives if you'll step out to the foyer so people can come to you after the service and thank you for your ministry and all that you've done over the years and for just being who y'all are. And uh, let's all stand together and join our hearts together as we sing the doxology. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.